Enterprise Management 360. I would like to welcome you all to this Enterprise Management 360 Cybersecurity Podcast interview. I am Dr. Andrew Aiken, and today we are speaking with Nick Whitfield, who is the founder and CEO of Panacea. So welcome, Nick. It is a real pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, Thank you for inviting me on. I'm passionate about the subject, and so I'm looking forward to our conversation. Sounds great. So, Nick, can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you developed your interest in cybersecurity? Yeah, of course. By background, like many in our industry, I'm a computer scientist. So I cut my teeth many years ago building trading systems in financial institutions, which was great fun. And it taught me an awful lot about how enterprises work and how to get value from data. So using different analytical techniques to understand data better, to to make positive trading decisions. And really, that was my grounding to get into cyber. The the company that I was working for at the time was acquired by a defense contractor. They were less interested in building trading systems and much more interested in building cyber defense capabilities. So I transitioned at that point from trying to use data to make decisions which would positively affect a P&L directly to using data to make decisions that would reduce risk for an organization. This was 10 years ago, I suppose, back in those days. I was building systems, typically for banks, actually, but they were looking at data sets that were inside a typical enterprise and really trying to sieve those data sets, you know, really understand the data that they had to understand whether they'd been compromised by a foreign nation state. That was my baptism of fire, if you like, where I transitioned from trading to cyber 10 years ago. That is awesome. So how would you say that the current state or the maturity level of the cybersecurity industry compares to other IT industries at this point? Yeah, it's a fascinating question, isn't it? Because as an industry, information security, data security, network security, these things have been around for a long time, of course, as concepts. I think as an industry and as a global society, we've changed enormously over that time. You know, the way I'd summarize it is that there's more of everything. Right? So there's, there's more technology systems in the world today than ever before. There are more people in the world today than ever before. There's more data in the world. And people are more and more reliant on using different technologies, different data sets in order to live, progress, and to protect their well-being. I think that's really the big difference that's happened over the years. Obviously, as a result of that, there are more risks, there are more threats wherever there is value to be had, unfortunately, there is an adversity who would typically want to try and exploit that for their own gain. This is why I think cybersecurity is now so topical. It's kind of top of the risk agenda for every enterprise because the well-being of their customers and the financial well-being of the company are entirely dependent on their cybersecurity posture. And I think all of those factors are going to continue. We're still nascent. As an industry, this is all still developing. There are new threats developing. There are new technologies developing like cloud and IoT and so on. We're still very nascent as an industry and we'll continue to grow and learn as we go. Yeah, and certainly, you know, one of the changes that I've seen is the attempt to monetize the cybersecurity breaches that, 
you know, was not the, you know, the bad actors goals initially. And certainly that has changed the threat landscape significantly. Yeah. So I see exactly the same. The, that this collaboration amongst threat actors where there's specialization, which makes them more effective and more efficient. But fundamentally, it always comes down to a return on investment. At the end of the day, it's a business of sorts where the gain of the attacker could be financially motivated. You know, it could be, as you say, selling credit card details, stealing money. It could be stealing intellectual property uh, for financial gain because they can sell it on. Or, of course, it could be that governments or other organizations want to get hold of information. But again, there's an ROI to that as well. There's always a the better enterprises can get at making themselves expensive to attack, the lower the ROI for an attacker. And that's the way I, I tend to think about it. I don't think the bad actors have a board that they have to answer to, though. <laughs> Perhaps not a board, but normally there's someone to answer to in life, right? <laughs> but you're right. You know, we've seen that evolution, right? It used to be bedroom hackers or very organized uh, nation state actors. Now it's combinations of hackers and nation states working with organized crime. And, and it's a much more complex landscape with services available within that landscape. So actually, you don't need the skills to attack. You just need some money to buy the service to attack. It's, it's really much more sophisticated than it used to be. And of course, for an enterprise, they're constantly trying to work out what are these risks and how can we best protect ourselves against them in a way which is cost-effective and reasonable? Yeah, it's amazing how hacking as a service has now become a phenomenon. So in this environment, let's say that you're mentoring a freshly minted CISO who works for an organization that doesn't really have a formal cybersecurity infrastructure. What advice would you give them for the first steps in establishing that cyber infrastructure, which is to say, what are the most important things to start with to secure your assets, like a Security 101 primer? It's a great question. And, and as I'm not a CISO, I, I will temper my answer with the fact that these are some of the things that I've seen and observed rather than, than I do for a living. But, you know, obviously, if you're newly enrolled, trying to protect an organization, I think obviously you need to understand that organization. You need to understand the business. We want to understand the key risks to that business. We want to understand what resources we have available, what the IT strategy is for that organization, and who are the accountable people in the organization that can help us and whom we can hold to account for doing the right thing in terms of securing the organization. One of the challenges I think any new CISO has is quickly getting up to speed with some of that information about you know, the organization itself, what they're expected to be protecting, how well protected it is, how vulnerable it is, and what is threatening it. You know, I think of those fundamental questions, you know, what assets are we defending? How well are they controlled? How well are they protected? How are they vulnerable to attack? And how are they threatened? You know, who is trying to get hold of them and why? Those are really fiendishly difficult questions to answer in a short time frame because that information is not readily available to a new CISO enrolled. The irony is that there are huge volumes of data in a typical enterprise that can inform that view of the fundamental assets and controls and vulnerability and so on. 
The difficulty is it's all spread out across the environment in lots of different tools. And it's the bringing together of that information that's really a challenge. So I think the CISO role is extremely broad. For me, the fundamentals are understanding assets, controls, vulnerabilities, and threats. So how would you begin the process of identifying the assets that need to be protected? You know, nomenclature in our industry is always a challenge because a lot of it's new and vendors, <laughs> we, we have a tendency sometimes to invent uh, vocabulary as well. When we talk about assets, we can talk about business assets such as money and uh, data, for example, and technical assets such as computers, you know, servers, laptops, mobile phones, databases, applications, and so on. The way I think about this is whilst quantifying and prioritizing risk is about the business assets, you know, because we care more about our main trading system, the computers that run it, than we do the vending machine that's selling us soft drinks. The business assets are important from a prioritization point of view. At the end of the day, they all sit on technical assets, such as databases and servers and so on. So I think that one of the fundamental questions every organization needs to be able to answer is, we call it the CIS, it's critical security control number one, right? Which is understand your devices, understand the computers that you have that are supporting the entirety of your, your organization and the business that it runs. This is a very challenging question to answer. A lot of these things in cyber, very simple questions to ask, are often fiendishly difficult to answer, especially in organizations which have grown through acquisition where different aspects of IT have been bolted together. So identifying technical assets can be a challenge. Now, the reality is the data about them often exists. You know, we have lots of systems which can see devices, you know, whether it's Active Directory, for example, as an authentication system, or, or your antivirus console, or your vulnerability scanner. You know, there are tools in the environment often that, that can see devices. And actually what we recommend and we think where the market is going, that the kind of the bar of what will be required in the future is to automatically bring together those data sets. So if you imagine a Venn diagram with your universe of assets, you know, everything can be seen by something. And if we can get those some things, if we can get those data sources that have some visibility, what we want to do is stitch those together. We want to aggregate those to understand what's our best possible view of the assets that we have. And that's, that's really the foundation. If, if you think of it that way. Yeah, that's quite a trick if you can accomplish that. It's a tricky um, data problem to solve, but a very meaningful one because you, you're also not treating those data sets as silos. You've then got a layer across the top that is adding additional value to those investments. Uh, that you've already made. But really that is, if you think of the Maslow's hierarchy of cybersecurity, we kind of see that, that asset base as right at the bottom of that pyramid. That's what we want to understand. And then in terms of protecting it, this is where the term controls come in, which I know isn't used in all industries. It's maybe quite specific to financial institutions, but we're, we're talking about technical controls. So you know, antivirus and EDR and your patch program and so on. And really what we want to do is understand that for the assets that we have identified, have we deployed our controls against them? And I think it's being recognized more widely now that whilst there's been a huge amount of investment in security tooling, often breaches occur because the tool wasn't switched on. You know, the control didn't have good coverage. We, we had gaps in our protection. Um, and really the next step for me is understanding 
for the assets that we got, how well deployed are our controls against those? Because you can have the best security tool in the world. If it's not switched on, it's not going to do you much good. Yeah, that's extremely true. And certainly it's, you know, laid into what it is that Panacea does. So can you tell me what it is that excites you the most about your current role at Panacea? I always feel lucky because, I mean, in an industry where there are really, I feel like I have purpose solving a cybersecurity problem. And I'm also lucky that I have people around me that have the expertise to solve that problem. What really excites me is that we're in a transition phase. We're going from a period where understanding and measuring cybersecurity, which traditionally has been done manually through questionnaires, through you know sampling data and so on that process is really no longer feasible or acceptable in a world where there are so many threats and where regulators are now you know issuing really big penalties to companies that can't show diligence in security i'm lucky to be working in this industry where we're now able to automate some of that process and this is where the term continuous controls monitoring comes in you know the this is the category that we work in it's it's that layer above your controls to continuously and automatically check whether the controls are switched on and whether they're operating effectively because at the end of the day that's fundamental to making sure that your your defenses are, are adequate and i think what we'll see is this transition over the next few years from those manual risk assessments which you know, whilst they've been useful, are kind of expensive, manually intensive. Uh, they're only relevant at a particular point in time, and then they're out of date. You know, we're moving from that old way of doing things to this new way of continuously automated measurement of security, very much in the same way that ERP has done for finance over the years. And the analogy is quite tight because in finance, everything in our organization affects the finances, whether it's a person or a, or a computer or a business process or a transaction. And actually, cybersecurity is the risk in the enterprise, which also is affected by everything in the enterprise, you know, every person, computer, business process, and, and so on. And that's why we think there's this exciting transition that's happening away from manual into an automated view of, of security. Yeah, I find it extremely interesting that one of the first things you mentioned about what excites you about your current position had to do with the people that you're working with. And I'd certainly like to touch on that a little bit more later on, as well as, you know, talk more about uh, the uh, continuous controls monitoring. But one of the things that uh, struck me was I recently uh, read uh, your blog post about the uh, British Airways fine for GDPR violations. Can you tell me why you think this particular fine might be a game changer for organizations that are doing business in the UK and the rest of Europe? Yes. I mean, the fines, which are under appeal, will be under appeal shortly, so we should state that, for British Airways and Marriott by the ICO, really, I believe, will be a fundamental change in how our industry operates and how enterprises view security risk and the risk to privacy of their customers, whose well-being we're really responsible for looking after. Up until today, security has mostly been sold, often on the basis of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. You know, 
telling enterprises that bad things are going to happen and they need to buy certain technologies in order to solve them, which, is, which has led to very much a, a piecemeal approach to security, a siloed approach where a certain tool will fix a certain threat and so on. I think now these fines have just added to the business case for security and they've created a very clear business case for security and privacy where the board now it has to answer the question is our security appropriate are we being diligent in security and previously they would ask that question in case they got hacked you know which a lot of organizations used to think was probably a long shot these days the question is not just could we be hacked what would be the effect on the business if we are hacked it's also even if we're not hacked are we being diligent in protecting the well-being of our customers by protecting their data and if we're not then there is a very serious consequence to that and so we now need to move to a proactive investment in diligence for cybersecurity and i think that will change how the industry views it and how organizations choose to buy products and services in security by the way i think this is all great for consumers who really do trust organizations with their data so i think it's a, it's, a, it's a win for consumers and it's a real challenge to to enterprises to really have to solve some of these problems as to how they demonstrate continual diligence uh, in protecting that data yeah and certainly fear and certainty and doubt or fud can be great for raising awareness but it is an abysmal place to start for establishing a cybersecurity strategy Yes, that's right. And it, it really does play, the FUD plays on the emotions, but it doesn't necessarily lead to, as you say, a kind of well thought through methodical view of risk and risk reduction. And I think that the reality is boards understand risk. You know, a company is basically an, an opportunity and a risk imbalance. So they understand risk. They've never really understood cybersecurity because we talk about threats and FUD. Now we can talk about a business case that if we're not diligent in managing this risk, then we get this type of penalty. So let's invest in a program that makes sure that doesn't happen. So what simple steps do you think that British Airways might have been able to take to help them avoid this security incident and the subsequent fine? It's probably unfair uh, for me to comment specifically on you know British Airways or any other company. I don't have the insight into them. I think for other organizations, obviously, there's a need to understand in detail the regulations that they're under. Many organizations, of course, will, will do this diligently. But the GDPR regulations in particular do, do require a lot of an organization. And I'm not sure that's always understood by the board in every organization, what the requirement of them is, what the expectation is. But I think in terms of how companies can mitigate their risk against this type of fine, is to proactively demonstrate as much diligence as they can to show that they are taking the most appropriate measures to the best of their ability. I don't think anyone expects companies not to get breached. It's, you know, you can't have a, every organization be 100% secure. What you can do is saying that is demonstrate that we are thinking about security in the right way. We are collecting data that tells us about our security posture we're analyzing that data and seeing where the gaps in our defenses are. And we are proactively managing risk treatment plans or campaigns to reduce the risk to the organization. And I think any reasonable 
regulator would look at that kind of diligence and say, if these investment levels are about right and you are methodically collecting information, trying to take the most appropriate action to reduce risk to your customers and your employees' data, then that's reasonably diligent. I think that in not methodically collecting information, analyzing it, uh, identifying gaps and acting on them, you're not demonstrating a proactivity and a method and a structure to demonstrate adequate diligence. And so for me, it really is a program to use data to transparently make decisions on cybersecurity on an ongoing basis. And really, that is what how we might describe CCM or continuous controls monitoring. So what challenges do you see that organizations face when they're trying to gain visibility into their cybersecurity controls and metrics? It's a good question. I think visibility is, is the key word, isn't it? Organizations that have grown over time have highly disparate IT environments often. They tend to be fragmented between business units, uh, between regions. The cloud means that data and, and systems are uh, not just uh, in their own data centers, but out in cloud service providers now. So there is a fundamental challenge, which however you choose to go about solving this problem, you have to overcome, which is to identify where is the data that is going to help me understand my environments, help me understand the assets that I'm responsible for, help me understand my controls and where they're deployed and where they're not deployed. So I think there is that fundamental question of you know, which data sets are going to be most valuable to me here. And then there's the pragmatic question of which of those data sets am I feasibly going to be able to get hold of and use? Because, you know, if you think about OT environments, so operational technologies such as in manufacturing or oil and gas, then the environments that we're responsible for securing may be on an oil rig in the middle of the ocean. They may be buried under the sea somewhere. They may be extremely remote and not connected in any way. So there are some real practical challenges to getting access to the right data. But I think what you'll see is that regardless of those hurdles, it is something necessary. Getting visibility is fundamental to uh, continuous measurement of security and assurance of that risk. It may be interesting to know we did a, a survey recently and 89% of organizations, and these are this was 200 enterprises we spoke to, 89% said that they had concerns about the visibility of trusted data about cybersecurity. And only 27% of boards thought that the security metrics that they were being given were sufficient and appropriate for managing the risk. So there is a real lack of trusted visibility into what's going on. And of course, the irony is that the poor old security team who are really challenged in with you know being under-resourced because we don't have enough professionals there. They're trying to keep up with a business who are expanding out to cloud and plugging in IoT. They're the ones who are trying to bring this data together to give to the board and other key stakeholders about what's going on. And what we found in the survey was that they're now spending 37% of their time, you know, the, the valuable time of these, you know, extremely well-trained specialists in cybersecurity, they're, they're spending that time moving data around and reporting on it rather than doing security. And, and that number's increasing. So there is a real challenge that visibility isn't where it needs to be, but this manual process to create it is causing a challenge. 
Now, earlier you were talking about continuous controls monitoring as you know one of the ways that we can help to alleviate uh, some of this stress on the cybersecurity staff. How would you describe the difference between continuous controls monitoring and the uh, mythical single pane of glass security dashboard? Yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's a great question because since I've been in security, we've been talking about a single pane of glass into security. And I think that the, the realization we've had is that security is no longer the realm of the security team. The recognition in the enterprise is security affects everybody. And there are numerous key stakeholders that need to have a view of security in order to do their job and order to be accountable. So whether this is the business line, the risk organization, the security team, the IT organization, the board, the head of a cost center, your customer, the auditor, your insurer, you know, there are lots of key stakeholders who need a view on, on security to some extent. And fundamentally, there can only be one version of the truth about security. We might not always be able to get it, probably never be perfect, but there's only one version of the truth. The problem with a single pane of glass is that assumes that whoever's looking, whoever's asking questions, needs the same perspective on that single version of the truth. And unfortunately, that just isn't the case. For example, the head of a business line, let's say the, the head of the asset management business in, in the U.S., doesn't need to know all of the data about security across all business lines globally. They need their, their sliced and diced part of that data at a level of summary that makes sense to them, their accountability and their skill set. Unlike them, the head of vulnerability management globally doesn't need all of the data about all of the applications running potentially all the endpoint protection status, they're mostly interested in the vulnerability management process and their relationship with patching within the IT organization. The board, of course, want a very high-level roll-up across all security measures, the whole security posture for the organization. So the realization was that the single pane of glass is mythical because so many stakeholders have different requirements of the data. And so what's much more appropriate is to create perspectives on the data for different stakeholders based on whatever their use case is, based on whatever it is that they're trying to achieve with the data. And really that's one of the facets of continuous controls monitoring is to recognize that you can't just create a single view, you have to offer these different perspectives so stakeholders can do the job they've got to do, make the decision they need to make and get on with it. So if you have now multiple people not all within the cybersecurity function of the organization viewing the current output of the controls from you know their own view and they all have their own perspectives aren't you concerned that people are going to have a tendency to waste more time debating what the data represents rather than working on actually solving the problems that are identifying the data and how would we be able to reduce the amount of that time that's wasted just trying to understand what that data represents. <laughs> you see your background, Andrew, that's a, it's a classic, really telling observation that this is what we see. In the enterprise, there is constant dialogue, discussion, debate, argument, uh, you know, between different teams about what is the correct data, about what is the truth, what is the ground truth that we all can validate and believe so that we can take the next step, which is to do something about it. And when you have these disparate systems, different stakeholders can come forward with their version of the truth and, and the, the debates continue. There's a process 
that we use a panacea and, and is used elsewhere in, in data science uh, called entity resolution. And entity resolution is all about establishing truth. So if I take an example, you might have five data sets uh, that can see devices. So it, it might be your CMDB, it might be your vulnerability scanner, your antivirus console, your, your firewall, whatever it is. What we really need to be able to do with that is to correlate across those and identify the same entity across each of those data sources and then reduce that down to say, you know, this is the unique set of entities we can see across the, this data and make that available so the interested parties can validate it. And what you find is this is a very powerful method to stop those arguments, stop the debate about what is the right data, because the data is just immediately apparent. And the compare and contrast between data sets makes it obvious what the truth is. And so we see that entity resolution process really kills off all of the debate about what's the right data, enabling the company to move to, well, what should we do about what we've just learned from the data? And that's really where we see an improvement in effective risk reduction campaigns rather than debate about data. That's amazing. Certainly want to see that in action. Now, earlier when we were talking about what it is that excites you the most about your current role, you were talking a lot about the people within the organization that you're working with and how exciting it is for you to be able to work with them. It's been a widely reported phenomenon regarding the cybersecurity skills gap. Of course, that refers to the lack of workers available to fill the open roles in cybersecurity for some time. Have you experienced this phenomenon and what has Panacea done to overcome it? The security skills gap is a serious challenge to us globally, really, because in the latest stats I saw were the you know, 53% of organizations have a challenge and they're under-resourced in cybersecurity skills. And that percentage is getting higher each year. So there are different solution approaches to this. One of them is obviously to train more cybersecurity professionals. And, you know, there are initiatives in every country, in both government and commercial worlds, to create more people who, who have skills in cybersecurity. The second is to create efficiencies for those people that we have who have cybersecurity skills, which I think is one of the you know, one of the reasons why we created our product was to, to help reduce the manual overhead on, on people with those skills. But I suppose in terms of awareness and training at Panacea, we, we tend not to hire the cyber domain skills indirectly. What, what we prefer to do is to take people who have the right raw ingredients, so that the right underlying capabilities and um, skill sets and then educate and train and immerse them within the world of cybersecurity such that over time they pick up more and more domain knowledge about this area. I'll take an example, which is uh, Layla, who's uh, on our data science team. Uh, Layla's a PhD astrophysicist. I have great conversations with her, maybe over a drink about the universe. But over the years, what's apparent, in, maybe in the same way that I moved from trading to cybersecurity, the skills required to model data, for example, in astrophysics, are transferable to the world of cybersecurity. And so over the years, Layla has become an expert in a number of different cybersecurity domains by applying her skill set that she learned in astrophysics to the cybersecurity data sets. 
Yeah, that's actually uh, one of the things that drives me as well. And certainly the dominant skill that I see for somebody that they need to have to come into cybersecurity is a passionate curiosity. It, it's not necessarily the, the technical aptitude, although they certainly need to be comfortable working with technology, but just the drive to figure out how or why something works the way it does is one of the things that I look for when trying to find who is going to be the, you know, the next up and comer within cybersecurity. Curiosity is absolutely fundamental. I think to culture in a company, actually, it's one of our key values. But certainly in cybersecurity, where everything is changing continuously, one can't just sit on the knowledge you already have and assume that's going to be okay, because you need to continually be curious about what's changing in, in technology, in business, in the attack techniques, and everything in between. And certainly as a penetration tester, I love the idea of breaking things to see how they work and then find a way of correcting it so that I can't break it again. <laughs> That's a great example, Andrew. You know, pet testing is all about, you're right, curiosity and finding the gaps. So our adversaries are well adept at finding the gaps in our controls. And we have to be as adept as them as finding the gaps in our controls but I think not on a one-off basis. We have to continually do that because it's the only way we can be assured that our security is working on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, relating to the uh, cybersecurity skills gap, do you see a problem with the gender gap within cybersecurity as well? The gender gap is present in many different disciplines in, in the workforce. You know, certainly in technology, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a gender gap. Um, and in cybersecurity, I think it's probably worse um, in terms of there's even less balance. It, it's a real challenge. And whilst I like to think that I and the company do what we can to improve that, I think it's also not easy to know what we should do to improve it. And I, as an individual, I'm not always sure what the right, the right way to behave is, what the right policies to put in place are. We have it front and center as an organization. We have a for a small company of 50-something people, we have, a, we have a diversity team, a diversity leader, the leadership team that discuss diversity periodically in our leadership team offsites. And we've put in place some practices to highlight and remove unconscious bias, for example. But it is, it's, it's a quandary, and I, I don't uh, pretend to be a, a thought leader on it. I suppose I do what I can to try and keep up with what will help improve that and make us better in terms of diversity as an organization. Maybe we can uh, all start recruiting more astrophysicists. <laughs> yeah, I think any, any company benefits from more astrophysicists, that's for sure. <laughs> now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but on Glassdoor, Panacea has a 4.9 rating for employee satisfaction. I'm assuming that's on a five-point scale and not a 10-point scale. And 100% approve of the CEO. How much did you have to pay your employees to give those reviews? Um, well, I heard something about this. I don't look at it. And uh, I, obviously, I'm pleased that as a company, we, we rate highly. You mentioned pay. It's funny, actually. When we founded the company, the first thing we would tell potential employees was that we paid well below market rates and 
this is not an organization to apply to if, if the financial rewards is what you're looking for. Not to judge that, but to say that there are lots of companies that will pay a whole lot more than us. That's perfectly fine. But uh, I wouldn't spend your time applying here if that's one of your key motivators. And I think that's kind of indicative of the culture in the company and how we've tried to set it up to articulate that a bit better. One of the, the core value, I suppose, we have is, is low ego. Um, and another is a sense of the mission that the company is on. What we find is that the people that tend to want to work here and, and do well working here all have a very low sense of ego. They have a low sense of their, themselves being important. They tend to be much more motivated by doing some greater good, whether that's for their community or for the team in this company or for customers of enterprises who we're trying to keep safe by protecting those enterprises. The low ego culture within the company helps to breed a sense of good teamwork um, and, and tends to reduce the number of you know, behaviors that you might see from prima donnas, people who are really driven by themselves rather than the greater good. I haven't checked those stats are right on Glassdoor, then that's maybe one of the reasons is that people put their team and the company and the customer first over themselves. Yeah, it's certainly a fine line between confidence and arrogance. You definitely want to have employees that are confident in their abilities. But, you know, as you were saying, an unchecked ego can certainly drive down morale within an organization. Yeah. And, you know, having worked in the world of trading and investment banks, then I've certainly seen some egos <laughs> in my time and seen some of them. And of course, some of them are very high performing, which is great. But what's sometimes not noticed is the detrimental effect on other people in the workplace who perhaps are performing as well, but don't shout about it and so don't get rewarded in the same way. Or people are disaffected by that beneficial treatment that might be given to the prima donna, the person with the real big ego. And I'm not saying this is the only way to run a company. It's, it's something that we believe in and, and works as a value for us. It, it might not elsewhere. That and one of the key values we hold is around compassion. You know, I think the world we live in today is, you know, it, it can be extremely challenging. A lot is expected of us. There's a lot of fear, uh, uncertainty and doubt, not, not just in cybersecurity, but in the media. The entirety of the media works on typically pedal stories which scare people, which incite, you know, dissatisfaction and anger. And at the same time, there's a huge amount of, of us is expected in terms of our performance at work. So, you know, our drive to succeed, whether that's financially or in terms of career path, but also to be perfect parents if we have kids uh, and to be, you know, perfect in the relationships that we hold. And I think this, this leads to a real challenge for the people in their lives. And, and just having some compassion helps, you know, with curiosity, helps overcome that because, if you're speaking to someone in the workplace, you, you may have no idea that their, their father just died or they lost a child or uh, they're suffering an illness or their loved one's suffering an illness. And I think just simply treating each other with compassion and understanding that I, I don't know what your personal situation is, so I'm going to be compassionate towards you, whatever happens. I think that goes a long way, particularly in the, the kind of high-paced, high-expectation society we live in at the moment. Yeah, compassion is absolutely critical, and I love to hear the passion with which you're talking about that. And certainly FUD is great for driving ratings for 
news organizations, but as we were talking about earlier, it's not a really good driver for establishing cybersecurity policy. Can you point to some specific incentives or activities that you've initiated to keep your workforce happy in their jobs? Yeah, we may do some things that other companies do. If I I think about some things that maybe are a bit different, we study something called quality of mind, which is a set of training that helps individuals understand how their mind works. So understand why sometimes they feel uh, particularly anxious or stressed uh, in a situation. And just by understanding their mind and being able to watch their mind, it kind of takes the intensity out of a lot of situations and helps them stay calm and relaxed, even in very challenging environments, such as you might experience in a, in a high growth startup like ours. So quality of mind is, is something that half the company's done and we're rolling out across the other half. We have regular meditation in the office. So once a week, there's a, a meditation session that's held. We have a, a wonderful company called Sanctus that we use who provide a counsellor on a periodic basis every month or two who comes in and, and any of the team can go and spend an hour with her and talk about whatever they want, whether it's frustration with their job or their boss or a financial problem they've got at home or a relationship problem or you know whatever's on their mind or, or how in love with the universe they are, it doesn't matter. That outlet is there to enable people to talk about those kinds of things because often once it's out then then it's a worry that's that's diminished we believe in that and we have yoga in the office and, and a bunch of other stuff but that kind of um, personal mental well-being i think is you know we've always held as pretty important and then physical health is also important as well you know in combination so we encourage people to start clubs in the organization these are not top-down company initiatives these are you know things that the team come up with and and spin up and try and if they get traction that you know they continue so we have a running club and a climbing club and several others and we do lunch once a week which is you know really good quality locally sourced healthy nourishing food and so yeah we do a lot of these things and the great thing is because we're able to employ People who are younger than me, for example, they have a whole different outlook and set of values around this stuff. So I'm continually educated by people we're recruiting as well. So I, I'm lucky I get to benefit from all of this as well. Yeah, and you know, certainly the uh, younger generations have a, a different drive that we need to be able to understand and address in setting goals and initiatives for our organization so that it aligns with, you know, what it is that our workforce is incentivized by. You're right. Make sure people understand what is expected of them. <laughs> That's pretty fundamental. And I, for one, am terrible. I can be terribly vague and excited about many things. And I've learned to try and be a bit more specific about what my expectations are. So I think that's a great point. All right. Well, I think we are coming towards the end of this podcast. So is there anything that you'd like to plug before we sign off for today? I would love to plug peace, love, compassion, and happiness for all. That's the most important thing in the world. So always plug that. Be low ego and care for yourself. But on the on the business side, you know, if you're a chief information security officer, chief compliance officer, chief privacy officer, CIO, and do take a look at continuous controls monitoring because I think it's going to be in your future somewhere and it'd be good to get up to speed on it. 
Absolutely. And is Panacea currently hiring? Yes, we're currently hiring at Panacea. I think we're in a permanent state of hiring. The skills that we look for range from um, hardcore back-end engineering, front-end design, UX, product roles, and of course, the go-to-market side of the business, so sales and marketing, both in the UK and the US. And I would reinforce from a, a values perspective, the kind of people that tend to do well here uh, are low ego, really driven by, by mission, and really show curiosity and a willingness to try new things. That's, that's fundamental. All right. Well, that sounds absolutely great. I loved our discussion and certainly the passion with which you're driving your organization and the incentives and drive to make sure that your workforce is satisfied with what it is that they are doing. So I'd like to thank you, Nick Whitfield, and thank you all for listening. And for more podcasts like this, head to em360tech.com. For more podcasts like this, head to em360tech.com.